Section 20 of Edward the Black Prince by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 17. The Death of the Black Prince. 1376. For the moment the people's cause had triumphed in Parliament. Meanwhile the people's friend was slowly passing away. The Black Prince had been afflicted for five years with a grievous malady, but he had never been heard to murmur against the will of God. His sufferings had been very great. He was often so ill that his servant took him for dead. He had rallied his last strength that he might give Parliament his support in its struggle against the Duke of Lancaster. For this purpose he had, as we have seen, moved to the royal palace of Westminster. There he lay in his father's great chamber and felt that his end was drawing very near. Two contemporary chroniclers have given us an account of his death, so that we are able to form a tolerably accurate picture of the scene around his deathbed. He bade them open the door of his room, that all his followers might come in. When all those who had served him were gathered round his bed, he said to them, Sirs, pardon me that I cannot give you, who have so loyally served me, a reward fitting your services, but God and his saints will render it to you. They all wept bitterly, for every one of them loved him tenderly. Then he gave them all rich gifts, and prayed the king that he would ratify these gifts, and calling his little son to his bedside, he bade him never change or take away the gifts which he had given to his servants. Then turning again to the earls and barons and all his other followers, who stood around his bedside, he said to them in a clear voice, I commend to you my son, who is yet but young and small, and pray that as you have served me, so from your heart you would serve him. He called also his father and his brother the Duke of Lancaster, and commended to them his wife and his son. All promised him truly that they would comfort his son and maintain him in his right. Soon his sufferings became too great for him to see any one, and it was forbidden that any more should enter his room where he lay prostrate in the pangs of death. One man, Richard Sturry, a political opponent of the princes, is said to have forced his way in, for what end we can hardly tell, perhaps to ask his forgiveness. But the prince roused himself in the midst of his sufferings to upbraid him, saying, Now you see what you have long desired, but I pray God that he will make an end of your evil deeds. After this outburst, the prince sank back half fainting. Then the bishop of Bangor approached and bade him forgive all those who had offended him and ask God for forgiveness of his own sins, praying also all those whom he had offended for forgiveness. But the only answer he could get from the prince was, I will. The good old bishop thought there must be some evil spirits present who prevented him saying more, and so he began sprinkling the four corners of the room with holy water. Suddenly the prince lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, God, I give thee thanks for all thy benefits. In all my prayers I beg thy pity, and that thou wouldest grant me pardon for those sins which against thee I have wickedly wrought. Moreover also, from all men whom knowingly or unknowingly I have offended, I beg with all my heart the favor of forgiveness. With these words he fell back and died, and with him, says the chronicler, all hopes of Englishmen departed. Bitter was the lamentation for his death. An old chronicler who lived in the prince's day says, 
him being present they feared not the incursions of any enemies nor the forcible meeting in battle truly unless god hold under his blessed hand that the miserable englishman be not trodden down it is to be feared that our enemies who compass us on every side will rage upon us even unto our utter destruction and will take our place and country arise lord help us and defend us for thy name's sake only the day before his death the prince had signed his will in it he appointed william of wickham one of his executors which shows us what confidence he placed in the bishop his will contains the most minute directions as to his funeral it was his express desire that he should be buried in the great cathedral of canterbury near the famous english saint thomas of canterbury his body was therefore carried from the palace at westminster where he died to canterbury there as it entered the gates it was met by a warrior mounted on a prancing steed he was armed for war and bore the prince's arms quartered then came four men carrying banners each of whom wore on his head a cap with the prince's arms a few steps further on the funeral procession was met by a second knight he also rode a stately steed but he was armed for peace and bore the prince's badge of ostrich feathers preceded by these warriors the funeral procession advanced through the city till it reached the cathedral then the body of the brave prince was laid before the high altar and vigils and masses were said in honour of it till the time came when it must be carried to its last resting-place in the lady chapel there it was buried at a distance of ten feet from the shrine of the martyr st thomas whom the prince when alive had always delighted to honour over it soon rose the noble monument which still marks the spot where lie the remains of the great warrior respecting his tomb also he had left minute directions the tomb is of marble sculptured all round with twelve shields each a foot high on six of the shields are his arms and on the other six his badge of ostrich feathers on the top lies his recumbent figure worked in relief in copper gilt he is represented in full armour wearing his helmet with his crest of a leopard engraved upon it he himself composed the epitaph which is graven on his tomb and it gives us a faithful picture of the mind of the man who wrote it it is written in french and may be translated all ye that pass with closed mouth by where this body reposes hear this that i shall tell you just as i know to say it such as thou art such was i you shall be such as i am of death i never thought so long as i had life on earth i had great riches of which i made great nobleness land houses and great wealth clothes horses silver and gold but now i am poor and wretched deep in the earth i lie my great beauty is all gone my flesh is all wasted right narrow is my house with me naught but truth remains and if now ye should see me i do not think that you would say that ever i had been a man so totally am i changed for god's sake pray the heavenly king that he have mercy on my soul all they who pray for me or make accord to god for me god give them his paradise where no men are wretched we need find no difficulty in reading aright the character of the black prince there are no contradictions to be accounted for all is plain and straightforward 
he was a simple god-fearing man who did his duty and led a life in accordance with the highest ideal of his times he was not in advance of his day we owe no great reforms no marked steps in our national progress to him but he is the type of the noblest spirit of his times he shows us the stuff of which englishmen were made in those days friend and foe alike counted him the bravest warrior of that age in battle he knew no fear and had that kind of courage and energy which inspired the meanest man in his ranks to fight boldly like his prince he was not only brave but was a skilful general and knew how to dispose his troops to the best advantage in each of his three great victories he fought against fearful odds and his success was due quite as much to the skilful grouping of his troops as to his bravery in the treatment of his prisoners he shows the beautiful courtesy of a true knight though we must blame him severely for his cruelty in the massacre of limoges we must remember that he only showed himself to be on a level with the morality of his day moreover he was aggravated by ill health and suffering and by the treachery of his subjects in private life he seems to have shown great kindliness and consideration for others he was beloved by all who came in contact with him the noblest of english knights chandos felton and many others accompanied him on all his campaigns and clung to him with a devotion which only personal love can have prompted he forgot none of his servants either on his deathbed or in his will when in his last days he saw that the english people were suffering from misgovernment and from the tyranny of his brother moved with noble pity he gathered his last strength that he might show himself their friend and save them from oppression as far as we can judge from the scanty records of the chroniclers he seems to have been much beloved by his wife the fair maid of kent and to have lived with her in great happiness he was a sincerely religious man his special devotion to the holy trinity is repeatedly mentioned by the chroniclers and we have seen how he never engaged in battle without earnest prayer his good qualities are throughout those of a simple warrior he had the genius of a soldier not the genius of a ruler when he first became ruler of aquitaine he seemed to be all-powerful his name inspired such fear that no one would have ventured to attack him it seemed an easy task to attach his subjects to himself and form a well-consolidated principality which might safely resist the attacks of his enemies but he lacked the qualities which would have enabled him to do this he was no politician he did not understand how to govern with economy and develop his resources before a wise and crafty man like charles v of france he was powerless he engaged in the fatal spanish expedition which ruined his health and drained his coffers his dominions crumbled away they were lost one by one without any battles whilst he looked on helplessly at the ruin in reality his great victories were fruitless and the wonderful success of the first half of edward the third's reign brought no lasting result edward the third was no more of a politician than his son instead of being content with what he had won and making it secure he indulged in wild schemes of ambition and whilst dreaming about the french crown he lost the duchy of aquitaine it seems impossible to doubt that if edward the third and his son had set about it in the right way they might have secured for themselves the possession of aquitaine as it was they not only lost what they had gained but with it also 
what had come down to them from their fathers yet we need not deplore this for the progress of england it was far better that she should not be hampered with external possessions the most important thing was that england herself should grow strong before she thought of extending her dominions edward the third's wars were useful to the progress of england not because of the glory which they shed round his name but because the great outlay which they involved drove him to call frequent parliaments that he might raise supplies thus a marked increase in the power and importance of parliament is the only beneficial result of this war in the main its results were most disastrous and no wise and far-sighted ruler would ever have engaged in it it caused the best energies of the country to be devoted to the pursuit of a chimerical object the crown of france for this object the resources of the country were drained and the interests of the people were disregarded whilst heavy taxes were laid upon them which crippled their commerce and their industries the bright promise of the opening of edward the third's reign found no fulfilment in the end the chief legacy he left to his successors was enmity with france and a restless desire to win back what he had lost so whilst we admire the valour and energy of the black prince in the conduct of the wars we cannot praise his father's wisdom in engaging in them but we must remember that though in wisdom he was not before his age in valour he surpassed his countrymen of all ages End of section twenty